Hello, and welcome to the special edition of the Rev Dem Rule of Law podcast. Our podcast today is a full recording of a lecture delivered by Professor Martin Kriegier on the 9th of February 2022. Co-organised with the CU Democracy Institute, Rev Dem and the Reconstitution Programme, the lecture was titled Three Ways Not to Think About the Rule of Law. Good morning, Budapest. Good evening, Sydney. My name is Barbara Grabowska-Moros, and it's a pleasure to welcome you at the CU Democracy Institute uh, online event, Three Ways Not to Think About the Rule of um, Law. CU Democracy Institute is based in, in Budapest, and its research is concentrated on different aspects of democratic um, principles. And as a history of CU shows, democracy is not just an abstract concept. It's actually something that has a deeply practical impact um, on our everyday uh, life. Today's event is co-organized by the Review of Democracy online journal established at the CU um, uh, DI, which provides research analysis and opinions and on uh, real time. And I think it's a really good thing to consider uh, putting subscribing to newsletter of the Review of Democracy as a to-do on your to-do list um, uh, for today. Our second co-organizer of today's event is a reconstitution, um, a program awarding fellowships for scholars and practitioners. And the fellows are having um, their second exchange meeting currently partially online, partially in Budapest. So welcome, good morning to, um, to all of you. Our today um, guest is uh, Martin Krieger, um, well known to everyone who is uh, interested in, in, in uh, research. He's a Gordon Samuels professor of the University of no, uh, New South Wales in uh, Sydney, but he's also a senior research fellow of the Rule of Law program at CU Democracy. Institute. He writes extensively on the rule of law, so I guess it would take an, us another event to dis discuss all those um, writings. But what I would like you to recommend is his latest co-edited um, volume, Anti-Constitutional Populism, co-edited with Adam Czarnota and Wojciech Sadurski. The book will be published by Cambridge University Press um, in, in March. So um, please stay tuned. I think it will be a really important point uh, on your um, uh, reading uh, list. Our today discussion will be moderated by Oliver Garner, um, editor of the Review of um, Democracy, but also a research fellow at the Bingham Center of Rule of Law. Um, I guess it's a good time and point, moment to pass the floor to, to Professor Krieger. Professor Krieger, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me. I have many very warm memories of, of the CEU in Budapest, and I, have, I plan to renew them for the first time after I get out of this paradise prison where I've been an inmate for the last two years and have not been able to travel. But this all ends. The world turns in three weeks, two weeks where I will be in Vienna at the Institute for Human Sciences for a couple of months, and I will be actively engaged, I hope, with all of you when I'm there. So uh, I have been accused, in fact, I accused myself, so I can't blame anyone, but it was taken up by other people of being a rule of law guy. You've got a, got a theme, democracy, liberalism, anything else, Krieger will say rule of law and. So I've written a lot of stuff on rule of law, but I've come to uh, suspect or, or believe that my topic really 
is less the rule of law itself than how we think about it and a kind of dissatisfaction with many ways that we do conventionally think about it. And I do believe there are many ways and I'm trying to uh, write about them at the moment. But today I will only focus on three as were uh, signaled in the abstract and in particular on what are the assumptions about how we should start investigating or thinking about the rule of law? What assumptions are behind how we typically go on thinking about the rule of law? And what are the assumptions about where we imagine, our, what our, we imagine our destination to be like? That'll be enough, I hope, for an evening, sorry, a morning, morning and evening. Uh, and then I'll leave you with that and start celebrating my birthday, which here is somewhat overdue. So beginning, how do you start? And this is something that I have written about a lot, and uh, I'll try to skip over it a little. The typical way that lawyers start with the rule of law is to offer some kind of specification of what are taken to be its elements. And these are typically legal elements. They are the elements of some legal order, one which exemplifies the rule of law if we think it's in good shape or fails to exemplify it if we think it's failing in any of these characteristics. The first uh, popularizer of the term in English, Alfred uh, Van Dicey, in fact, had a much more complex approach, but he has been taken up over a period of well over 100 years as saying the rule of law comes down to three elements of English law. You have to have this element, that element, and another element. Uh, many lawyers follow that example. I don't want to get into the details because time is short, but they follow that example, even if they're not following Dicey, they imagine that the rule of law is to start thinking about it, you have to define it in terms where you find it exemplified. So if you're happy with your own system, and in the last 30 years where rule of law export programs and promotion programs. Sorry, I always speak too fast. And I would like some guidance whether this is too fast. Or a kind of hand up saying slow down. That would, okay, thank you. Uh, so in this period, particularly after the collapse of communism, where rule of law promotion became a kind of worldwide enterprise, the notion of having checklists for the rule of law based on some successful legal order has taken, uh, has had enormous popularity. So lawyers talk about legal institutions, and you can see a lot of this in your part of the world in the Venice Commission checklist. Rule of law depends on this legal element, that legal element, another thing. Legal philosophers raise their gaze a bit because they pretend to be speaking to a universal audience. And they say, well, it's not so much particular institutions as characteristics of rules. They should be clear, they should be prospective, they should be public and so on. Rule of law promoters uh, often too go into the field with their rule of law checklists around courts, maybe security services and so on. And I think all of these are important things to keep in mind, but I think that in principle, to start here is to start in the wrong way and in the wrong place. And I was delighted to 
trip over on, well, you don't trip over anything on Google, but anyway, to uh, happen upon a quotation attributed to the CEO of the American tool company, Black & Decker. And he said, people don't go into a do-in-yourself store to uh, buy our drills. They go because they want to make a hole in the wall. And there's a real profound insight there. If you have something which is dealing with a problem, then start with the problem. And why should you do that? Why not just go with tried and true elements of the rule of law, institutional elements of the rule of law, and recommend them to countries which are weak in these aspects? I keep finding real more reasons not to start that way. Here, I'll just skip over a few. And in all of these things where I'm signaling a point, I'm happy, of course, to, to go into more detail in Q&A. So first of all, as we know, and it takes, it's a banality, institutions vary and they change. They, the institutions which Aristotle had in mind when he said, as he famously was quoted, <clears throat> to say that better to have the rule of law than the rule of any man, he was not thinking of anything we would recognize or anything much that we would recognize. They vary and they change and they must vary and they must change because the problems which raise concerns for the rule of law in turn vary and change. We might have a general rubric, and I do, and it's not at all uh, uh, unconventional, that the problem for which the rule of law seeks to offer some solution is arbitrary power. But as we know, arbitrary power comes in all shapes and sizes. It can be the arbitrary power of a monarch, it can be the arbitrary power of the Prime Minister of Hungary. It can be the arbitrary power of officials in, uh, in Facebook or Twitter. Arbitrary power is exercised in all sorts of ways. And so if the problems change, the solutions or contributions of rule of law programs will have to recognize that and adapt. Thirdly, context change. As we know, none of this is news but so little of it is taken into account by people who write about the rule of law. Central among them, of course, lawyers. Lawyers write about what they know about and they're paid to do that. And people think, well, if it's the rule of law you're talking about, it has to have law, it's got to be law. Uh, what else could it be? So lawyers have a certain monopoly and it keeps them, they're familiar with starting with the law and with particular institutions. I think it's a mistake. Fourthly, where I've talked institutions change, problems change, uh, contexts change. All of this goes on in a context where the key thing to understand is the nature of social causality. That's not my phrase, but uh, a phrase by the great legal anthropologist Sally Moore. In social causality, as she points out, legislators and lawyers more generally and pol political actors work with folk theories of social causality. What leads from A to B to C? Lawyers' folk theories typically start with law. That's where they start. Seems to me that that is a naive way to start, and I'll come back to that issue shortly. Not because I think law doesn't matter, but because I think we don't understand yet uh, the ways in which it matters, what other things might matter, what reciprocal influences might be important, how important it is that the law be in sync 
with a whole range of factors which aren't in traditional definitions of the rule of law. A fifth reason to worry about starting with a checklist of some sort is that it can make you uh, vulnerable to what uh, um, our speaker last night, I think it was last night your time, but I watched it today, uh, talked about when he called, talked of, I'm going to get the word wrong, parasitism and mimetism, is it? That is copying and living off better examples. You have in Hungary and uh, Poland, which I also watch, elaborated examples of attempts, literal attempts, to undermine the point of the rule of law, as I'll explain it in a second, by copying and living off existing legal forms. And for some long time, officials in the EU didn't know what to do about that because everything looked kosher, not a word so popular in some parts of the world, but uh, it looked kosher. The, the institutions were there. It was done according to the books in Hungary because of the constitutional majority. It could be again and again done according to the books. And yet uh, something was wrong. It wasn't working in any way that somebody who values, who has some idea of what the rule of law is beyond a slogan, but as a value, an ideal, a promise uh, could recognize. And a third and sad thing, because I've engaged in these activities myself and I have great respect for other people who engage in rule of law promotion, we don't have many successes to point to. I spent five years on and off going to Myanmar to promote principles of constitutional democracy. Well, maybe some people were influenced, but ultimately this was just uh, not worth a hill of beans. And I think that a lot of people who have promoted the rule of law uh, find that disappointment, that disappointing experience, but they didn't, of course, it's difficult. It's not easy to promote the rule of law in a country which has come out of military dictatorship and has now gone back into it. But it's not just difficulty, it's the way we think about what is involved, at least that's my claim. Perhaps I'll move from this litany of, of problems to say what I think is a lesson from them. That we should start asking not what particular institutional legal box of tricks seems to us to work, and then judge from there whether the rule of law is instantiated or not by referring to such a list. But ask first, we may get to the same features, but first we should be asked, what is the nature of the problem that we are seeking to come to terms with? And in talking about that problem, I have nothing original to say. I think, as many people do, that the problem is the arbitrary exercise of power, not power by itself. We need it and we can't get rid of it. Not arbitrariness by us by itself. People with young children know that arbitrary power can be charming. Sorry, that arbitrary behavior can be charming, but not arbitrary power. When your children get older and they have power over you, you don't want that to be arbitrary. Now, arbitrary power is an evil. And of course, I'm just repeating what people have known for generations and probably millennia, often using that word. 
in uh, other work, well, in, in written work, I've tried to unpack, first of all, what I take to be prominent examples, types of arbitrary exercise of power, and also reasons why they are so objectionable. I'll just mention them here, but won't go into the details. Uh, again, in Q&A, we'll go into it. Basically, uh, this is not an exhaustive definition by any means, but it's a, a, a selection of some important ways in which power can be arbitrarily exercised. It's when it is uncontrolled. This was very strong in the English legal tradition. Even the king, ultimately, after fighting, uh, was to be bound by the law. When it is unpredictable, this is something that the philosophers keep talking about, clear, uh, uh, understandable, public, so on. When it is unrespectful, Jeremy Waldron has said some interesting but limited things about this aspect. He talks about the procedures of a criminal trial, which allow people to speak in their own behalf, which require an independent judge. But lack of respect is a much broader notion than that. Arbitrary power, power, the power of a colonial administrator who simply sees through you because you don't exist for that person, uh, is likely to be arbitrary in this sense, unrespectful. And the fourth, uh, which I haven't yet written about, but I think it's important and I've only started to try to come to terms with it, is exercise of power which lacks a connection with or a proportionality to a justifiable goal. Anyway, the details are not here or there. I think that arbitrary power stinks. That's a technical word, but you'll get the meaning of it. And vast traditions of thinking about the rule of law have said that. And I can go in, perhaps I won't now because it might seem obvious, why it is so deeply objectionable when it is serious, that is, when it has potentially serious results, irrespective of the, the substantive purpose of the exercise of power, the arbitrary exercise of significant power is Now, having got this far, somebody, uh, some rule of law thinker will say, well, what's news? We knew that. We knew that arbitrary power was the problem. So what are you telling us? What I'm saying is not, I've discovered, I've brought a rabbit out of a hat, but rather that if you start with the problem, then you don't immediately get locked in to some particular form of legal hardware, which may not be up to dealing with the problem on the one hand. That is, you can have the hardware, but the problem isn't solved. Orban and Kaczynski are examples of that. You've got a constitutional court in Poland. As people go to it, not that many anymore. Uh, they delivered, judgments are delivered. It's not easy in a formal sense to say something is wrong with it, but there's a lot to be said that is wrong with it. If you start thinking all these forms and institutions may be there, and in Hungary in particular, they may be honoured because they can be honoured, but still they are, to use the title of Andra Shaya's recent book, Ruling by cheating, and a part of that cheating is the arbitrary exercise of power. So that's one reason that you miss a lot. You'll be taken in by people who, like a lot of modern illiberals, pretend to be acting according to law. They're not like 
Lenin in his early days who said uh, the dict dictatorship of the proletariat is the government of uh, by the government of force unrestrained by any laws. He was not apologizing, he was boasting of that. Well, modern illiberals and populists among them don't boast, but they still act frequently arbitrarily. And another reason why it's important to start with the point, start with the goal, is that you then have to ask, well, how would we deal with that? If arbitrary power is so objectionable, how would we go on to think about what should be done about it? Which brings me to my second theme. The first was about starting with um, what I've elsewhere called anatomical approaches, trying to detail the anatomy of the legal system which approaches the rule of law and moving to what I prefer, which are teleological approaches, which say, let's ask after the point of this enterprise. And if you start with the point, arbitrary power stinks, and somehow we would, should, want to limit the possibilities of its exercise, then, well, what would you look for? Now, lawyers will look for law. And of course, law is likely to be important with public power in particular. But both when we look for the targets which might be of interest to people committed to the rule of law and the resources which might be necessary to, or the weapons, if you like, which might be necessary to aim at those targets, then my approach, I think, suggests we look in a different way. First, targets. Part of the rule of law tradition, and this is already from Aristotle, is to look at political forms. The rule of law is about constraining government. It's a standard cliche. That's what it's about. But if you start with thinking arbitrary power is horrible and it shouldn't be available to be exercised in a decent society, then you might have to ask, but what about all those forms of power which occupy many people's whole lives, for example, in corporations, or which develop through the uh, wonders of modern technology like Facebook and others, don't they raise problems of a sort which we thought were objectionable when we found them in government? So I think frequently they do. And frequently we have to think of private power as an appropriate target for those for whom the ideal of the rule of law matters, not just public power. And Whatever one says about targets, again, I think when you try to think what resources can we bring to bear to limit or to constrain or to, to use the word that in a moment I'll say it's more about, to temper power so it not be arbitrary, then a moment looking at uh, a legal sociology course or sociolegal studies course 101, will tell you that looking at legal institutions is looking at too little. Because legal institutions to have significant effects have to be in sync with a whole plethora of other social resources, of traditions, of attachments, of values. I wrote, in fact, I, I think I talked on uh, in a 
in a publication of Review of, Demo uh, yes, Review of Democracy about uh, the problem of what a great sociologist who was my mentor, Philip Selznick, called institutionalization. Why was it that, at least so far, Trump had much more difficulty playing with the institutions than Kaczynski or Orban? Partly because institutionalization, according to Selznick, is uh, infusing an organization with value beyond the technical purposes at hand. So if you're a Marine, it's not just a job. If you're a member of a church, it's also not just a job. After all, the church has a word for it, it's a vocation. Some people feel led about a university, but less and less. Uh, my argument in that interview with Review of Democracy and in the piece which was the basis of it was that The rule of law was much more deeply institutionalized in America and Britain. This might be coming apart. You might be seeing the breakup of this. But it has been much more institutionalized in social attachments than was the case in much of Central and Eastern Europe. And where we were talking about uh, and trying to get countries to emulate international best practice, we might have given some more thought to thinking about how do we institutionalize, get people attached to the institutions that we are exporting and they are importing, initially very willingly. This is a theme that's, of course, been uh, wonderfully explored, not in these terms, by even Krustev and Stephen Holmes uh, in their recent book, The difficulties of or the psychological trauma of being asked to imitate but some imitations work japan after the war germany after the war uh, attachments are important they're just part of a whole range of social factors which are not necessarily visible to people who say well the rule of law is as dicey says these three aspects of a legal system happens to be a British legal system. Couldn't even survive the crossing the channel because the French didn't have it. So the going on I'm talking about is in a sense the need, if one takes seriously the hope to develop, to approach, uh, the goal, the promise, the, the point of the rule of law, the real to the need to think in a wider, if one's an academic, cross-disciplinary lens, to think of the rule of law as it is, as a social and political achievement, as much as it is likely to be a legal achievement, where on the one hand, the targets will not just be legal, political, entities, and on the other hand, the resources you have to deal with them also will not just be legal and political uh, and state entities. So I've talked about two themes, and I hope it's not too garbled. First, how to think about how you start, where you start, what you focus on in starting to think about the rule of law, and secondly, 
how you go on. The first I said should be teleological and the second I argue should be one which takes into account the extra state and extra legal fundamental conditions, or at least which explores, I don't have any ready answers, which explores these as tirelessly as we've often explored legal targets and legal preconditions. But now my third theme is the destination. And this is not really a place, but a characterization of the goal. What do we want? What would we need from something which purported to be a solution to the rule of law problem? The term I use, which I'll try to explain in a moment, is we would need to have reliably tempered power. Tempered power. I was very pleased when I came up with that, uh, thinking I was original. And I, my pleasure wilted a little when, first of all, I found it in Bracton in the 13th century, then in Cicero and the Roman Republic, and then before him in the term Sophrosyne among the Greek tragedians from whom he took it. So nothing I say is original, but I'm hoping some of it might seem at least plausible. Why temper? Rather than the ways we normally think about the rule of law, which is to limit, to reduce risk, to, uh, to, let, to uh, damage control. My heroine in political theory, who's written about these matters insightfully, is Judith Schlar. And she insisted that, and she, she claimed this was Montesquieu's insistence, which she was following, that uh, the only goal of the rule of law was to constrain, particularly state power, so it not be wild or arbitrary. She, many people take that line. That is the line, the general line. Yesterday, um, a speaker also mentioned constitutions as a way of risk management. And of course it is. And so our whole looking at, at what, the const what we want from the rule of law is that it limit power. Particularly if you're neoliberal, that's the obvious thing. Uh, Hayek says things like, Power is the arch enemy. And he says, the whole problem of constitutionalism is limiting power. And even somebody that I have uh, drawn on greatly, the Italian political uh, scientist Giovanni Sartori, also in a wonderfully insightful piece on uh, constitutionalism, still limits his vision of what you want from the rule of law to limiting, constraining, curbing and shackling, a word that I'll come back to. Shackles, you have to put shackles of power. Now, uh, Joseph Raz, who is less enthusiastic about uh, the rule of law, also sees it in this negative light. For him, it's only a negative, oh my, I've just got rid of you. Oh, you're back, thank you. Uh, for, for him, the rule of law is just a negative virtue, if any virtue at all. That seems to me radically misguided, but here I had to learn two things. First of all, uh, I learned from Steve Holmes when I was in Budapest, something which 
I really took me a long, long time to understand. I shared this view that what you want, because despotism is so horrible and I hate it so much, you need to limit power. That's the agenda. And Holmes wrote in a various range of uh, pieces and, and contexts that we learned from the Soviet Union that overarching, overwhelming power is horrible. But he said, writing in the Yeltsin period, we learned also that ineffectual state power is horrible in its consequences. That the power, the, the state has to be powerful enough to do the sorts of things that need to be done. That power, after all, a constitution doesn't just limit power, it distributes power. It, to use Hart's phrase, which no one's taken up as far as I can tell in this literature, it is, it confers powers and it must confer powers. And even when it disciplines power, it limits. The consequences of that are very often positive. Holmes talks about uh, constitutions, but also more generally the rule of law as on the, on the analogy of grammar. You can say grammar limits because I could just say blah, blah, why not? But it doesn't just limit, it facilitates human communication. And unless you know something about it, you can't use it for that purpose. I swim or try to swim a lot, not very well, but very passionately. And I am disciplined in my approach, ineffectually, but, but um, honorably. And I swim better than I did before I learned all this stuff. So enabling constraints, what uh, Holmes calls the liberal paradox, are key to one of the functions of the rule of law. They are both, they increase power and they have positive consequences we want because those consequences are to limit the state from doing what, or limit other powers from doing what they have no right to do. But to facilitate, give jurisdiction, give uh, corporate status, make somebody a property holder. They facilitate activities which without their intervention could not exist. Now, I learned all this one way or another from, from Holmes. Not only, sorry, do they increase power, they increase competence. Wild despotism is very often crazy. You know that, I know that from Myanmar, people who were in Romania a certain time ago, know it too, there are many examples. Uh, competence depends on predictability in certain respects and predictability for citizens uh, and safe security depends on limitations. And from this, positive things grow. Now, so much so that the only criticism I would have of the argument that Holmes presents is that like so many people, the people he disagrees with as well, he sees power as one scale, more of it or less of it. They say you should, the state should have less of it. He says they should have more of it. But in fact, what he's talking about is a qualitative distinction. Certain powers to lash out blindly, what the historical sociologist Michael Mann called uh, despotic power, are what you, the rule of law should curb. But infrastructural power, 
the despotic power is the power to kill anybody or roll over anybody, uh, notwithstanding their views on these matters. Infrastructural power is something else. It's a cooperative activity. It undergirds things happening in society. The, even the Soviet regime now, which is very strong in despotic power, is pathetically weak in infrastructural power. There's a recent book published, I think, last year or the year before, by the two political economists, Darren Asimoglu and um, uh, I've forgotten his first name, John Robertson, Robinson, called The Narrow Corridor. And they say uh, it is a narrow corridor, a, a state-society relationship such that people within the state or society can rely on rights and believe that they have them and exercise them. And they say there are three sorts of uh, options. One they call a despotic leviathan, where there's no control on the state's power. Another they call the absent leviathan, where the state simply can't do anything. Uh, Ernest Gellner, uh, former member of the great, distinguished, most distinguished member of the CEU, once talked about in his book on civil society that until recently, societies really only had two, one choice between the rule of kings and the rule of cousins. So the first was despotic, the second bound you into, uh, into ritual, into uh, observation at a very close distance and so on. They argue for what they, I think, misleadingly call shackled leviathan. That is a, a, a state which is strong enough to do what we need states to do, but where the society is mobilized, organized, can constrain the state. I think that's right, but it shouldn't be called shackled because no one does well out of shackles. It is more, and this is the theme with which I'll spend the last few minutes concluding, the metaphor I'm looking for is captured by, or at least this metaphor of tempering power captures some of the things I think we need to think about, not in some sense of rule of law or some vice. Because remember, when Kaczynski talks about impossibilism, when uh, populists talk about with loathing about constitutional constraints, they are not normatively, but descriptively agreeing with Judas Schlaf. She's saying we need these constraints because without them, the state would run wild. They're saying we don't need these because democracy has it all. I'm saying they're both wrong in this understanding because what we need is not a state that is manacled, but a state which is in some ways, its positive powers are enabled by the tempering power of the rule of law. So I'll conclude with that metaphor. I'm not a philologist. I haven't explored the various nuances, and I'm not sure that everybody who uses the metaphor uses it in the senses I have, but think about it. I'll start with English because it's the only language I know well, and I'll say a little word about Poland, which I know very rockily, and we have somebody who can correct me in an instant if I go off the roads. So first of all, in English, when the Greeks spoke about Sophrosyne, they were talking about a personal virtue. Their tragic heroes were people of power and often of, of greatness who had hubris, who weren't restrained, who had no sense of judgment, who weren't thoughtful, whose passions and powers and strengths were not balanced by anything else. 
Cicero took over the concept and one of the translations he gave for it was temperantia. And had I the courage to look at the pictures uh, that I put up, I have some uh, pictorial uh, representations of temperance. Temperantia was from the start seen as something, a virtue of institutions which required mixing, balancing. It was already though, that way in Aquinas, and it was that way in Montesquieu, obviously. It was that way in the French, in the, not the French Revolution, in the American Revolution. So tempered power is a virtue of moderation, which in institutions requires a certain balancing of forces. Remember those forces in Montesquieu were not just legal forces. You had to have intermediate groupings, he insisted, as did Tocqueville a century later. And that's important for my second point. This is not just a legal um, project. Thirdly, when we talk about tempered steel or tempered glass, we talk about something whose primitive uh, predecessor, iron or untempered glass, is brittle, hard, and not nearly as strong as the tempered version, which is more flexible, which works on a balance of alloys to make it up. So this seemed to me to capture what I think is what we should be thinking of when we think of the rule of law. Not a series of shackles and manacles, but a series of both constraints and powers conferred, which does limit the possibilities of evil doing of arbitrariness in the exercise of power, but does not necessarily limit the, should not limit the positive uses of power, both state power and non-state power. And to conclude, those were the three elements I uh, understood to be useful in the metaphor. But uh, I was a few um, months ago interviewed by a Polish journalist, of, eminent journalist Jacek Szarkowski in the journal Politica. And the interview was handled in, was conducted in Polish, which I know fluently, but with an unlimited capacity for making mistakes. And Szarkowski uh, asked me, um, what do you think is missing in the Australian political scene? So, in the Polish political scene, Djokovic is missing in the Australian political scene, but in the Polish political scene, what is missing? And I said something like the tempering of power institutions, which regularly don't try, because I am hostile to, uh, to Kaczynski's notion that law is only there or only does, uh, make state power impossible, not for that, but to temper power, to enable good uses, good uses because the Polish state is not uh, a kind of uh, utopia of efficiency and effectiveness, uh, to, for positive uses, but also to constrain the ability of personal power to be wrought as it should. And he, uh, he said, he translated for me, he said, so what you're saying is the state should be like a goose quill pen, sharply tempered, so as to act with precision and not mess everything up with mistakes. Sounded good to me, though I didn't have a clue how exactly the metaphor of tempering 
had led him there, I replied precisely, just what I meant. No, I didn't know what he meant. Uh, but now I've discovered that, and I, one of my illustrations would have shown, I only discovered when Politico came out and the cartoon above this interview was a man whose head was in a pencil sharpener, out of which came tape of shavings in the Polish colours. And then I asked Wojciech Sadruski, what's this about? And he said, well, don't you know, pencil sharpener is in Polish a temperówka. And that seemed to me to cap the story because there you have something where the fourth, it's another theme of, of Holmes's brilliant work on states of emergency, that rulers often think that they have to throw off the shackles of the rule of law in order to deal with emergencies. And he points out that very often throwing off the shackles means you don't get the information you need. You go after the wrong people. You don't go after the right people. You're in a sea of ignorance and arbitrariness. Not a good place to be. Thank you very much. That's it. Thank you so much, Professor Krieger, for this insightful, also very accessible lecture. And as Barbara mentioned at the start, uh, my name is Oliver Garner. I'm one of the editors of the Review of Democracy, RevDem, live platform of the CEU Democracy Institute. And I'll be uh, moderating the Q&A session now. So just in terms of housekeeping, if you have questions for Professor Krieger, then please do comment in the Facebook um, section, the comment section, which is directly below the video, and we'll pick them up and uh, ask the questions. Um, but maybe to start our, our conversation, um, I, I was personally struck by the fact that at the Democracy Institute uh, with CEU, we've obviously been tracking so many of these rule of law crisis developments, and you can lose sight of the, the wood for the trees when things are so fast moving. I can see the real value of, of a lecture like this is for us to almost leave the woods, <laughs> look at the woods, think, is this the right way to go in? And... I think that's an incredibly valuable exercise and it's kind of brought a, a lot of questions to my mind. Um, but one thing I was really struck by was your, your use of metaphors throughout. And you said about the way to start, where we should start and why that shouldn't necessarily be legal. It shouldn't be legal vocabulary. It shouldn't be starting with ideas of law. And I suppose my, my maybe provocative question would be, should we be almost killing our darling as legal scholars when we're trying to kind of instantiate a, a rule of law culture and completely leave behind the vocabulary of law and legal system and instead go back to ideas that perhaps people will identify with from their personal relations, their social relations. You use this metaphor of, of swimming and it kind of brought to mind for me sporting metaphors. Again, we have, you know, if power is exercised, say, in a game of rugby or football without discipline and responsibility, you can't achieve your goals because you'll simply be causing fouls and you won't actually be able to literally score a goal. So, yes, I suppose the question is, is there value for us to completely leave behind legal vocabulary and talk to people in the language of social relations, of power, of discipline, of responsibility, of fairness? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I worry sometimes, have worried over some years, that in a sense I'm pushing myself in that direction, which is not where I want to get. It's not where I want to get because uh, legal institutions, where they have developed, uh, are a form of social knowledge. 
legal institutions come up, I mean, this is an old sort of common law theme, particularly courts, the common lawyers used to say, come up against social problems. They deal with them all the time. But, and, and, and they come up with certain solutions. That's one issue. A second issue um, is that it's not only the good guys who go to the law. When I watch Orman and, and Kaczynski, do I want to tell them, uh, or do I want to tell people opposed to them, look, forget the law, it doesn't count. That's not what I want to say, not for a second. But we also have many forms of failure which come from what I think, not as a person who has answers, but a person who wants these questions to be raised, we come from a, an insufficiently thought through understanding of ways in which law works in the world and what it needs, what legal interventions need to support them. And thirdly, on context, uh, let me just give a couple of examples, which certainly I, I, I'm, I worry that this might seem too folksy, but these examples hit me a number of times. Uh, and I'll start with uh, uh, an observation made by Mark Galanta, the sociolegal scholar, and in another place by Philip Selzman. If you want to know where health is to be found, you shouldn't be going to a hospital. You shouldn't start with a hospital. Of course, you have to go to a hospital. You want your hospitals to be good. Now, a few years ago, I was uh, at an institute of advanced study in, in Stanford, and one of the um, other people there was uh, the former scholar of the American legal system, a sociologist, James House. And I didn't know anything about his research except the good, the, the good sportsman played volleyball and we went up to that, so we played ping pong. So we talked over this ping pong and then I discovered that he was involved with a lot of people in a huge study of why American health outcomes compared to other countries in a similar socioeconomic and political position are low. Not only are they low, but more is spent on money per capita and absolutely on health than anywhere else in the world. And his solution, he didn't know anything about what I was doing and I didn't know what he was doing. His, his answer, not solution, solutions is not what I have the capacity to offer. His answer was that uh, we weren't going to solve this problem, Americans weren't, by spending more on high class hospitals and uh, machinery and et cetera, et cetera, surgical equipment and research there. Already we spent more on that, they spent more on that than anywhere else. We would have to think about what's the role of socio socioeconomic differentials, what's the role of education, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's one point. Another, another example. Um, I was just driving along in the States a couple of years ago, and I was writing about this sort of stuff. And an NPR program came on about a, an engineer from uh, MIT who wanted to solve, who wanted to deal with the problem that is worldwide 
how to develop what they call a mobility enhancing machine, what we would call a wheelchair, for countries like Kenya, India, various other very poor countries where people live in conditions very different from those in MIT. And he'd invented what's called, with a lot of stakeholder input, the leveraged freedom machine. He said, you can't, if you take a, a wheelchair, first of all, the streets are often in many villages unpassable in these ways. Doorways are too small for these things. And if you need spares, you need to fix anything, you're not going to get anything there. So he developed a, the details I won't, I won't, I'll leave for another time. A machine which did the job, which was increased people's mobility, but did it in ways which were never thought of in the context in which he was. And so when I say this is about thinking, not doing, I'm not being modest. I'm never being modest. Uh, I'm not being modest. I'm just saying a lot of thinking has to go in and law is going to be a huge part of it. But if it is law or we do something else, then you're going to miss out on a lot of what is necessary to understand, to understand even what law needs to do what we imagine it does, let alone all those other things which are outside the law, the uh, what one Polish sociologist called uh, um, groupings of dirty togetherness, which get things done in a lot of countries, but do it without any reference to the law. The law sends out signals and how they land, how people interpret them is a whole story, which is not a legal story, but it's closely associated to law. Thank you so much. And I, I definitely, I think I definitely take your argument there that in the society we are in now, the place that law has, there's probably a lot to be lost if we were to try and skew this vocabulary, it'd almost be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And we do have some questions coming in from the Q&A and, and happily um, our assistant editor at Revdem, uh, Alexander Lazovich, has, has asked a question that actually I uh, directly written down as well, because he mentions about how your presentation touches towards the end upon the relationship between rule of law and democracy. And something that struck me when you were talking about the almost kind of lack of social connection or feeling of the legal system or affiliation of people to the legal system, I wonder whether this could come about because a lot of the times when people encounter legal decisions which are constraining government power they might see that as constraining an option which they have voted for so for example with the Miller judgment which was obviously about in the UK about article 50 and withdrawal it was about how to withdraw but people saw that as constraining withdrawal which they had voted for and of course the argument of democracy is is very powerful there um so what Alexander asks is, is, what role can the rule of law play in preventing the exercise of arbitrary power by judges themselves? He notes that this is a topic that populists happily pick up, but it's also prevalent within the academy with uh, what's been called political constitutionalists, such as Richard Bellamy and Jeremy Waldron, who kind of warn about issues of judicial oversight over Parliament and the exercise of democracy as a different danger of arbitrary power. So Alexander's question really is, are judges the natural guardians of the rule of law, precisely because it is law? 
And can the rule of law restrain its own guardians? Well, thank you. I didn't expect to be getting easy questions and my <laughs> expectation is fulfilled. Uh, and of course, this is a, a huge and traditional question. Um, again, I think that in order to, to take me back to my themes, I would say that it's difficult to answer either of those questions with an anatomical approach. That is with one uh, which says that uh, the rule of law is to be found in the institutions of law. And since the only, uh, since at least following Montesquieu, the only um, institution which is, as it's been called, as you know, the, what is it, the, the link, the, the, the weakest branch. So it's not making the decisions, it's not enforcing the decisions, uh, it's just interpreting the law. And of course, forever people have asked the question, who guards the guardians? And it's always a good question. Uh, and, but I, my approach is to say, not, not sort of, um, Well, not pompously, but there it is. Not with this huge, with, with condescension, not with condescension, but just to say, we've got a problem. It's pervasive. You find it everywhere. It's not the existence of power, which is pervasive and you find it everywhere. But as I've said, uh, and in, I've tried to say quite a lot elsewhere about why we need centres of not centers of power because power is a relationship, but we need the ability for certain institutions and people to exercise power. Uh, it's not inherently a bad thing, but arbitrary power, I want to say, is inherently. And I'm saying, let's start there. Now, if you start there, then these two questions are difficult in any event because it's a matter of institutional design and, and so on but they're not in principle different, difficult. That is, if the rule of law is uh, high, a, a Supreme Court like the US with certain um, uh, jurisdiction, which is laid out in the constitution like the US's or many others, and judges pointed for life or some other uh, tenure in a situation to make judgments about them, if that's where the rule of law starts, well then these questions are in principle difficulties because you're going at what people have said is the center of the system. I'm saying, in a sense, as an opening of discussion, the problem is not about judges. Sorry, there is a problem with judges. But the problem of the goal, the ideal of the rule of law is to temper power. And if you're telling me that there's a problem with tempering the power of judges, I say, yes, there is. And so that has to be dealt with as part of the program, not as an in principle undermining of the program. Uh, I can't remember what the second question was. Um, maybe I've spoken to it in some way, but I, I do want to say something broader. There is, so for me in principle, 
There is nothing objectionable in principle, before we look at the evidence, about advocates of political constitutionalism. And I think there is a lot in the argument, for example, of Paul Blocker, that, and others, Adam Chalmotter among them, that we uh, got too excited in post-communist development of the rule of law to enhance the powers of at least constitutional courts set up by different people in, in different institutions, not part of the common system, uh, staffed by brother, by, by academics, mostly not, not people tainted by the former regime. It gave them a very strong situation and that can lead to justifiable concern that maybe they're given too much power than is healthy for anyone but it can also make them unjustifiably targets of people whose interest is not to say there should be some other or combined or complex form of tempering power, but say we don't want power tempered. And so to sound uh, kosher in the West, a populist can say, well, what we want is to temper power by political means. If that's what they're saying, I think that's, that's a, a domain for argument. But if the real argument is we don't want those people here until we can destroy the institution and then make it ours, as has happened in Poland and Hungary and uh, Turkey and, and some other places. Thank you, Martin. And um, I was really struck, and I think it links to what you're saying there when you said in your answer to the previous question about legal institutions are a form of social knowledge and something I found interesting is perhaps we see this um, deeper institutionalization in the United Kingdom of course because of how the common law developed over such a long period of time and you could see it was in social relations that principles were being developed and then perhaps applied to governments when necessary rather than this you know, very dramatic uh, imposition and I think we, we have a question from our, our rule of law work group leader at the CU Democracy Institute, Dmitry Kochinov, uh, which connects to this, this theme. And his question is about the overlap between the idea you've presented of a, of a tempering power approach to the rule of law and how this relates to pre-existing ideas and scholarship about the gubernaculum jurisdictio conflict approach, which has been discussed recently, for, for example, by Gianluigi Palambella. So his question is, are these different terminological characterizations of the same idea? That's this idea of a power that is um, to govern and power that is constrained, or do the differences actually go deeper? Uh, uh, I don't know if this was Dimitri's intention, but I thank him if it was what's called a Dorothy Dixer. Is that a general term in English <laughs> Parliament as well? In Australia, if you're asking a person a question he'd love to hear, <laughs> from your palmer. That's a Dorothy Dixer. And I'm very grateful to, to have that question because uh, I have uh, talked about this a lot with, with uh, Gianluigi. And in a book of his essay, uh, yes, it's in the book. Actually, I can't even remember if it was in the book or a review. Of the, I think it's in the book of his essays. I respond trying to. Uh, to answer that question. And my answer is this. I think um, the distinction honors 
the promise. It's not an institutionally rigid distinction. It's not saying you have to have A, B, and C. It's saying that, in a sense, in terms uh, that could be mapped onto Michael Mann's distinction between uh, despotic and infrastructural power, maybe it can't be mapped. But anyway, he's saying that a government uh, should have the power to do what it's required to do. But there is a domain, that's the gubernatorial, but there's a domain that should be protected against that. And not even the king should intervene. This is Charles McElwain's interpretation of the, uh, of the common law tradition in the medieval common law tradition. It's actually been contested, and I'm not a historian enough to, to work out the contest. Katarovich in his King's Two, uh, two Bodies uh, disputes the historical basis for McElwain. But let's say it's, 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 it was there. And I think in terms of thinking about tempering, it has the virtue of saying, we want governments, governments to be able to govern. It's terrible if governments can't govern. Uh, terrible. I mean, when people talk about failed states, they're not talking about something abstract. They're talking about something uh, uh, horrifying. Uh, that incompetence, the ability, the inability even to fix up a road. Incidentally, in the, uh, I sound to be meandering, but I will get to the point. I think it's an occupational hazard I have. Uh, in the book, the, the Narrow Corridor, they speak of a fourth sort of state, which is not part of their tri uh, tripod that I spoke about. They call it the paper Leviathan. This is a state which is strong enough to muck you around, strong in that sense, but ineffectual. It can't do anything for you. If you've got a problem with tax or if you've got a problem with a bureaucrat, it's not just that they can beat you over the head, but you really can't get anything fixed. So this distinction that Palabella has worked through deeply and uh, captures the importance of governing. It's not like Hayek saying, well, the, Hayek sometimes says it just gets said all the time, but Hayek sometimes saying power, state power just has to be limited. He's saying governments have to go, etc. Ah, and this is where Gianluigi and I parted company, and we have parted company on this issue for a very long time, and in the piece, wherever it is, that I wrote, this is what I replied. There is no sociological dimension to Gianluigi's account. It falls into the, the second of the three ways of thinking I talked about in that the targets are all government. There's nothing there and nothing easy to extrapolate, it seems to me, to forms of arbitrary power, which can be huge, but don't take the form of governments. In a piece that's coming out with a, in a book um, edited by Mark Tushnet and, and, uh, and Dimitri, uh, I have a piece on private, private power and why you need to extend. And some people try to do it by saying, well, private power is very much like government. And if it is, we should treat it the same way. Of course, if it is, we should. But what I want to say is there are all sorts of arbitrary power already in existence and looming through technology, etc., which we've just got to get a handle on 
in terms of the animating value of rule of law. So the targets are the traditional targets for Palambana. Secondly, he is scrupulously a lawyer. He's far better a lawyer than I can ever dream of being. And But he is a lawyer in his whole conception. It stops with what two principles have to be respected by the legal order, by the law itself. And I want to say, you can have all that. And what about if, as it used to be in the first post-communist years, uh, if you went to Bulgaria, you would be told about the wrestlers, all these gangsters who seem to control things. In Croatia, tycoons. In uh, Russia, the oligarchs. In Poland, businessmen. So to the extent that these people have serious power, frequently, I would say typically, exercised arbitrarily, there's nothing, it seems to me, in Gianluigi's approach which speaks to that because it's a lawyer's approach. And I think he, I think he agrees. He says, well, you, he would say to me, don't do enough on the law. And I, I'm putting words in his mouth. I don't know if he would agree with this, but I say that. He doesn't say enough about this whole contextual aspect which seems to be so crucial and so shown to be crucial. It's not the defects of legal, legal drafting that have caused the problems of the rule of law in Hungary. Thank you so much. And we have some more questions that have come in that I think connect to themes that you've mentioned there, and it may be worth perhaps collecting them together. So the first question, which is from Marianne Bagazzi, excuse me for the pronunciation, connects to the idea you discussed there of the, the paper Leviathan and the importance of governments being able to govern. And I think it's actually a very fascinating take on the issue because the question is um, whether we can see a corollary on positive arbitrary power of there not being only arbitrary action, but often arbitrary inaction. And the example that's given is if power holders denied the existence of a pandemic and took no measures going against existing me medical evidence, could we say that by not doing anything, they're actually exercising arbitrary power of inaction, even if this seems like an oxymoron? And she also asked a question about how this uh, connects with separation of powers and can the principle also entail that judges shall sometimes direct political branches to do something in response to this arbitrary uh, inaction. And there's also a question from Teodora Miljokovic, uh, which connects to what you were discussing about arbitrary power, but also this idea of unrespectful power, which I think is perhaps a slightly more less investigated idea. Um, and she says the unrespectful exercise of power calls for deepening our understanding of the rule of law. So she asks you, how would we precisely define unrespectful power in line with the existing standards on the rule of law? And what differentiates this unrespectful exercise of power from just bad politics? So we have two maybe uh, distinct but related ideas here of the arbitrary inaction and the idea of unrespectful exercise of power. I really, I think arbitrary inaction has to be hugely important. Um, and I, I just have to think harder on it. I haven't, I haven't. I don't have an answer except that I've got to have an answer. Um, 
because it's 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 obvious that um, I've um, yeah I have to think my way, way through it. The, one thing I've wanted to do, you know, there is this famous uh, and I think um, fruitless debate between thin and thick conceptions of the rule of law, where the thin conception uh, only limits itself to institutions, legal institutions, of course, because that's the way the game is played, and the uh, thick, like your Lord Bingham, uh, says, well, on top of that, there are substantive things. And when he talks about substantive, it still seems to me he's talking about the content of the law. So in that respect, um, uh, he hasn't moved beyond that. And I've wanted to say that a concern with arbitrary power um, can't be limited to either of those options. It's, uh, for, well, it's not about particular institutions specifically, it's a project or a program. And uh, the institutional approach is often not at all thin because it incorporates home country uh, assumptions. So Dicey is an example of that. But if you want to have the rule of law, and he was worried that you couldn't do it, you send it to the colonies. Maybe they don't have the basis for it, but he didn't have a real answer for that. Uh, so already there are lots of assumptions. Like one, for example, uh, I was listening to an anthropologist talk about Myanmar. Uh, this was in the better times when it wasn't a dictatorship, uh, 10 years ago or something. And she said she was answering a question why people in the village she was studying didn't uh, take account, didn't utilise the various uh, legal instruments which were being developed under various programmes, IDEA and uh, the World Bank and various other things. And I thought I had the answer to that too far away, cost money, we don't believe those. It's because in this village with their particular religion, to deal with this problem, particular problem, you need to have some religious uh, overlay. And the state institutions didn't do that. Now, I would never have thought of that. But if you want people to be able to use these institutions, you have to be able to think of that. Uh, so the thin is, is not really thin. And the thick is often uh, too thick. This is Raz's old complaint, that if the rule of law is everything good, we have words for that. So the rule of law is lost as a distinctive concept. So I want to say arbitrary power straddles that distinction because we are looking at a specific issue, which is the use of power. It's not thin because uh, you can use power in arbitrarily ways, unrespectfully. That's a substantive thing. But it's not about uh, social justice. It's not about many human rights. It is about some which relate to exercise of power, but some don't. Uh, now, the problem, I, I really have never, it's like being hit with an obvious hole in you've been thinking for 100 years and then you think, oh, but why didn't you think of that? Uh, arbitrary inaction is obviously um, a form, a, a malevolent, or, or it can be a malevolent, but it can be uh, hurtful in any case, 
form of inaction. And I think, maybe I'll think tomorrow that I shouldn't have been so nonplussed. Maybe I'll find an answer, in which case I'll try to find who asked the question and write to them. But my only worry is, it, at the moment about fitting it in, often you would call an arbitrary inaction uh, a refusal to do what government is supposed to do. And sometimes that would be cashed out. For example, so, social democrats who criticize the neoliberals. There are lots of things which a neoliberal state doesn't want to do, doesn't do, which on grounds of social justice, we might say they should do. But what I haven't been, I'm thinking on my feet when I'm sitting down. Actually, I'm not wearing shoes because I'm sitting down. You don't know that because I'm in a whole country. But uh, I'm thinking all at once, and maybe I shouldn't be so bothered. But what does bother me is whether I can adequately answer that challenge without sort of dropping into a fully substantive account of the rule of law, which for other reasons I don't want to come. But I'm hoping I don't, and I will. Well, thank you, and I'll try to think about that. The unrespectful power, you know, my first three, actually all four, I didn't realise that when I was trying to get some content into arbitrariness, it's a bit like the American judge who said, well, I can't define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. So lots of people talk about arbitrariness that way. We know caprice, whim, so on. But, and I'm not a philosopher, I'm not going to try to define it, but I thought, well, if the guy can do anything he likes, you want to stop that because whatever his intentions, which may be honourable, you don't want anyone to have that power. If we don't know what they're going to do, if it can hit us like lightning, we don't want that because not. And then Waldron added uh, respect. And then the fourth one really is about proportionality. And now I realised after I agonised to these four that they're really a kind of generalisation of principles which were in strong legal systems anyway. Mm. Now, with respect, that's what Waldron does. Waldron says uh, there is something deep in good legal traditions which formal accounts like Raz's and Fuller's, etc., don't capture. And that is we go to great lengths to give access, or maybe we don't, and then we should be criticised, to allow access to courts, access to justice. The courts shouldn't be friends of the family. They should be independent. Uh, a person who is accused should know what the charges are and should be able to develop their own case and so on and so forth. And in a very eloquent article, and he's repeated in some others, on the rule of law and the importance of procedure, which was in a Nomos collection some time ago, I think Nomos number 50, uh, getting to the rule of law, if that is what it was called, he makes out this case that these procedures, quite apart from formal qualities of rules, are fundamental to the rule of law because uh, without them, somebody charged uh, will not be treated with respect, not be treated, will be treated, for example, he says, like a dilapidated house or a rabid dog. If you think that people should not be treated in those ways, even though the judgment may go against them, then... Now, I think that's all terrific, but again, just as I was saying in answer to Dimitri about uh, Gianluigi, why stop with the principles, with the 
procedures of high courts in predominantly criminal matters, when the world is full of millions, probably billions of people, who are being screwed by arbitrary power and have never gone into any court. So I think the principle has to be generalised. Uh, of course, empirically, there's a lot of it about. Um, but I think that we have Kant. I mean, that's, treating people with respect is not news. Uh, I think that I'm grateful to Waldron for focusing on it, but I think that he exhibits exactly the sort of assumptions that I criticise by limiting it. In one of his articles, in several articles, he says, in a salutary way, which I respect and agree with, uh, that we want the concept to speak to the problems of societies which weren't first world luxury products like England was taken to be in some European countries. We want it also to speak to people who are not don't have privileged access, are being screwed because they never could. No, I think that's exactly what the rule of law, because the value is so important, should speak to. And, of course, notions of access to justice do that to some extent, as do the procedures he wants. But I think if you take the value seriously, then again, you don't funnel yourself down to some preformed checklist where the answer always has to be come, brought out of this box. There's nowhere else it can come out of. And I think that that is narrowing. I'm not sure I've adequately answered either of those questions, but they certainly have made me think, and I'll, if we rerun this, re-record it, uh, I might have a better answer next week. Yeah, I wonder with, um, yeah, arbitrary inaction when you're confronted with a new idea, I wonder if going back for a legal lens, the idea of emissions versus acts, liability, which is dealt with differently in different legal systems, could be helpful, kind of ideas yes. of obligations that are imposed upon ministers to engage in certain procedural um, actions and yeah and as you said in terms of the political system looking at the idea of responsible government prerogative to care for welfare but indeed it does seem like a very innovative sphere of thought to go into and uh, for our it may well be a, a very um, fitting final question and final point to look at which is looking towards the future and perhaps what you were discussing about a destination because we have a question from Lucia Corso which uh, asks uh, about whether the double-edged nature of the rule of law might end up with a suspicion against the power of innovation of, of algorithms and an excessive concern for factionalism and she asks whether digital utopianism and innovation may be incompatible with the rule of law because this aims to suppress any form of discretionary power tempering it. So I think this is a question about whether what you've identified as an issue of private power, whether if we apply the rule of law to this too strictly, we could actually impede forms of, of human progress. Sure. And that's a huge question. And you can, uh, I think you have to really take serious things seriously. Sorry, what uh, that mean. Uh, I, but there is something underlying it. Uh, often, in, in the book I'm trying to write now, I end uh, the chapter on tempering power 
by again echoing Philip Selznick, who believed that he thought arbitrary use of law, that's a bit narrower than what I'm saying, but arbitrariness in the exercise of power, he wouldn't disagree is, is where you start. I mean, that's not what he puts, but it's in there, I think. And he says, well, what are we going to what are we going to draw out of this institutionally? You could say that as soon as something isn't rigidly constrained by rules, when ministers have discretion uh, or a bureaucrats have discretion, then you've got a slippery slope to arbitrariness. Not only could you say that, but Hayek says that. And not only Hayek, but a whole range, I don't want to use neoliberal simply as a pejorative, but a whole range of classic liberals, not all liberals, because I, I admire liberalism in its connections with the rule of law, but a lot of liberals who thought themselves classic liberals uh, were opposed to the welfare state on precisely those grounds that unless you have, as Scalia put it, the rule of law is a law of rules, unless that is the way you think about it, uh, then, uh, then you're, you're down there in arbitrary land. Uh, I've always thought, and written a few times, that that uh, is bogus, that you really have to make qualitative judgments, and that it's a way of, that you can be arbitrary, and this may be, sorry to come back to the, the inaction question, so I'm trying to, to preserve my dignity by finding somewhere where I might have thought about this issue. But uh, I have, in the context of the welfare state, said the notion that you shouldn't look at any particulars because the rule should govern it was already something that bothered Aristotle. It bothered the developers, the law of equity. It bothered legal traditions. And it's bothersome. And that precisely there in the state, in, in, in relation to government, the, I think, an analogous problem to what she is saying about uh, algorithms, digital, etc. You have to uh, judge it in the circumstance of the case. So you have to have a robust and not just a conception of arbitrariness uh, and not just a word. Because the word can be used for slippery slopes, to conjure up slippery slopes where they don't exist. Now, uh, uh, Selznick developed a concept that wasn't fully developed of what he called responsive law, that law should not just be autonomous. This was a stage of legal development where you try to tighten up the distinction between law and politics, et cetera, et cetera. But over time, you will find, and this was a kind of Deweyite uh, progressivism in Selznick, that problems are too complicated and that that sticking to the rules alone will miss a lot of what's important in a particular case, will hamper and, and, and limit in unfortunate ways the ability of people to come to competent decisions. And he said that in the life of institutions, uh, there are moments where you really have to insist on the rules because there are no rules and you try to tie some certain things down. But it's wrong to pretend that you're always in that moment. In a 
strongly developed political legal system with strongly developed traditions, with a sense of what applying the spirit or listening to the spirit of the constitution or the law is. In those circumstances, what you're open to is going to be different. It doesn't mean you can just forget about all this, but what is available to you is a different set of uh, possibilities. And so in the particular cases that Lucia's raising, I don't know the details at all, but I think they're the consider. I don't think that any uh, dogmatic answer that as soon as you uh, it, as soon as you interpret, which you always do, you're on the on the slippery slope to arbitrariness. There's got to be much more nuance and subtle than all of that. Thank you so much, uh, Martin. I think it's a, a very good point. Could I add two things? Just I don't know. Probably you're out of time, in which case I'll just shut up. But <laughs> if I could say two more things, sure. one which picks up on something you said, and I'm worried about this, and I haven't completely sorted out. My approach: start with work out what you think the point is, and then start thinking about it. Is not the way people in systems where they're happy work. Burke said, uh, you know, we live on, it's a partnership, etc. We have rights, but they're not abstract. We can't think of everything anew. That's an important point. Oakeshott, Michael Oakeshott, when he attacks rationalism in politics, he attacks people who think everything should start with a plan. He said, no, you should pursue the intimations of traditions. And I, who was once a conservative, a long time ago, and, and not now, but still I haven't shaken it all off, uh, think that is deep truth about the ways we go on in systems which seem to be working and good for us. But there are two problems with that, or three. One is problems vary, and initial uh, existing recipe may not be up to algorithms or Facebook or etc. So you've got to think new. Secondly, they vary. In a globalized world where we're selling the rule of law around the world, more than any time before, I think, we have to take these sorts of issues seriously because they, in Myanmar, uh, we weren't pursuing the intimations of tradition because the traditions weren't like that. We were trying to improve on traditions. Uh, if a Democrat ever comes to power in Russia, and it may be an unlikely event, but it's not a contradiction in terms quite, then that person will not have a huge store of rule of law traditions, Russian rule of law traditions to draw on, but still you want something to be done. And thirdly, sub-traditions, and this is not available in much, in Burke or in Oakshaw, are lousy. We should not, but conservatives who are, defending an order are not commonly best place to work out which those are. And then finally, finally, and it's truly finally, I'm very conscious and sometimes uh, worried that all this how to think, there are real people in the world dealing with so serious problems and I haven't told them anything specific about what to do. And I gained courage, I was rereading Montesquieu recently, for, for wonderful quotes, and that's a good thing to do because there are plenty. Uh, remember that he, uh, he started with a problem. 
despotism, which he hated. And what he sought was not to uh, speak well of monarchy or the republic, because he thought there were virtues and vices associated with it. What he was after was to talk about the importance of moderation in the exercise of power. Okay, often he uses the word tempering, but it, his key word, I think, is moderation. Uh, uh, so, and, and then one of the things for which he's most famous is to say, well, one way of getting it, which the English were masters of, was separation of powers into the three branches. And as every constitutionalist knows, he got that wrong. It wasn't quite true of the English tradition, but because he was so uh, loved and admired by the American founding fathers, they made it part of their constitution. And so he profoundly shaped the founders' constitutional thinking, but he left them no manuals or blueprints. On the contrary, he deliberately avoided doing so, and he wrote, and this is what I really promise is my last word. Actually, it's his last word. I should like to think out, sorry, I should like to seek out in all moderate governments the distribution of the three powers and calculate thereupon the degrees of liberty each one of them can enjoy. But one must not always so exhaust the subject that one leaves, one leaves nothing for the reader to do. It's not a question of making him read, but of making him think. Well, if it's good enough for Montesquieu, it's good enough for me. And thank you very, very much. <laughs>